The scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 14, starting with verse 1 all the way through the end. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers, to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the, apostle, when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed altars for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Sidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God and for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you, by your spirit, will speak to us. We're here listening for your voice. Point us to your son, Jesus, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world, in whom is life that never ends, life that abounds, that abounds to the uttermost. 
Remove whatever obstacles you need to in our lives. Convict us where we need it. Encourage us where we are downcast. We offer this time to you. May it be set apart for your purposes. Lord Jesus, this is not about us or about me or about even those hearing, but this is about you and what you will speak to us through your word this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, I, uh, I never fail to get a kick out of the fact that drug companies are required to list all of the potential side effects on their advertisements. Uh, I just, I get a kick out of that every time. I mean, you know, if you've, you've seen commercials like this, and it's a drug that's supposed to, you know, clear up acne or something, and you're like, well, that's good. I mean, at a certain age, acne can be incredibly embarrassing and socially difficult. And you're like, good, clear up acne. That sounds like a really good thing. And then they start listing all the side effects, and you're like, oh my word, like, Partial blindness, kidney failure, infertility, like paralysis. And, it's, and you're just like, whoa, 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 this is not, these risks don't outweigh these benefits. Of course, the drug companies are smart. Uh, and so they try to like counteract the fact that they have to do this by like, you know, dubbing these uh, potential side effects over, you know, shots of a family strolling through sunny meadows. And so you have this clash of messages where you're like, you know, death and paralysis and partial blindness, but oh, they look so happy and they're just wonderful. And like, well, come on, would partial blindness really be that bad? I mean, it's only partial, right? <laughs> the reason that drug companies do that is because they are mandated by the FDA. Uh, I'm not a big government guy, but, you know, praise God for the FDA, because uh, at the least we get those funny commercials, but they're legally required to, to list both the benefits and all the positive consequences of a drug. That's why they do it. They would not do it otherwise. They don't do it out of the goodness of their hearts. They would be sued if they didn't. Now, Jesus, in his Gospels, when he would call people to follow him, he also would give the full picture. And he gave uh, amazing invitations. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest for the anxious soul. Jesus said, if you come to me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water that will never end. Jesus claimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He, he gave promises to, to people who are desperate. And yet Jesus also was very honest about the cost of following him. And the reason Jesus did that as well is not because he was somehow legally obligated like drug companies, but because he, he wanted everyone to have a clear idea of, hey, this is what the, the path is going to look like if you follow me. Jesus wanted everyone to know up front, this is what it's going to take to be a follower of Jesus. He wasn't interested in kind of, you know, pulling a, a, a sucker punch or, or a, whatever it's called, bait and switch. He wanted us to know. Now, in our story this morning, we see Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and we see the, the difficulties and the trials and the outright suffering that they experienced through the ministry that Jesus had called them to. And what Paul and Barnabas tell the Christians in Galatia and what, he's, what they're telling us this morning by the Spirit is that what they experienced was not somehow just reserved for apostles. It's not like, well, they're, they're called to this special ministry and therefore they go through these hardships. What they're saying is this is true for every Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's going to involve at times these difficulties and trials and outright suffering. And we get this from kind of the theme verse of this, of this whole chapter, which I want to read for us, because this is going to both explain my whole sermon, because this is what explains this whole chapter. And it's verse 21 to 22, and, and really verse 22 is a theme verse, but 21 gives it some context. But when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And so there's Paul and Barnabas having experienced sufferings which their hearers would have known about and perhaps witnessed firsthand. And what Paul and Barnabas are saying is, hey, this is, this is going to be the case for all of us. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's necessary to go through these tribulations. Now, they're not saying it's necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Like, well, hey, unless you suffer for Jesus' sake, you can't have a relationship with God and salvation. No, 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 no. 
We enter the kingdom of God by grace through faith. It's a gift given to us which we receive. We've done nothing to merit it. But it's necessary in the sense that if you want to be a Christian and follow Jesus, the road that he will lay out for you will be one that will have, at times, trials and tribulations. It's necessary because of whom Christ wants to form you to be. So outlined for us this morning is overarching theme, entering the kingdom of God. First point, through fear and danger. Second point, through misunderstanding and harm. Third point, but Jesus holds us fast. So a quick recap. Again, Paul and Barnabas, they've begun their first missionary journey. They're they're in Antioch, uh, north of Israel, in modern-day Syria. And the Spirit speaks to the church and says, Set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work I have for them, which is to take the gospel where it was not known. And so they go out on the first leg of their missionary journey, which I should have a map behind me, And they go first to the island of Cyprus, which is actually where Barnabas is from. It's kind of a logical starting place. They have a preaching ministry there. They see people come to faith, disciples made. And once their work there has completed, they head north into what's modern-day Turkey. Uh, And they don't stop at the coast, but they go inland to Antioch of Pisidia, which is a pretty significant city of the Roman province of Galatia. Again, this is Galatia that they're in. The, The letter to the Galatians is written to the Christians who, are, who, who become Christians on this journey. In Antioch, Paul preaches to a predominantly Jewish audience. And initially, initially, there's great interest and excitement, but that quickly turns into opposition, and eventually Paul and Barnabas are driven from the city. And, but that's not before they've seen many people come to faith in Christ. And as they leave Antioch, they then move on to three other cities, which is what we're going to see in our text this morning. They start at Iconium, and then they go to Lystra and Derbe. And you can see those three dots are the three cities. And that concludes their first missionary journey. After that, they kind of go back through those cities and then head back to Antioch and report, just like missionaries today, when we have missionaries and they visit us, they report on what God has been doing. So that's just an overview of where we are. But here they are. They've been driven out of Antioch, and they end up at this next city, Iconium. Uh, And this is our first point, through fear and danger. Let me read verses 1 to 7 for us. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So overview what, goes, what happens, they enter the city of Iconium. Iconium was a significant city like Antioch, And so there was a Jewish presence there as well. And they have an immensely powerful preaching ministry. God is blessing the preaching of the gospel in an unusual way. And a multitude of people become Christians. I've I've never seen something like this. This is what we pray for. This is what you call revival. Um, And not only is there, you know, people professing faith, but God is performing miracles. Again, we sometimes think like, well, in the New Testament, like people were being healed left and right, and, and there were a lot of healings, but it was not happening all the time. But here, God, or Jesus Christ through his spirit, is performing miracles which all are testifying to the truth of who Jesus, this, this Jesus they're preaching, is testifying to the truth of who he was. Um, but like at Antioch, there's opposition, and once again, it's spearheaded by the Jewish population in the city. And just to give you an idea of how much the Jews hated Barnabas and Paul and the gospel they preached, the Jews were willing to partner with the Gentiles in order to fight their common enemy, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Jews in the ancient world, I mean, well, in the Old Testament, Jews were commanded to, to be separate from the nations. And the goal of that was to form a country that, or a, a nation that was set apart for God to reflect to the world the goodness and the plan of God. Over time, that metastasized into just racism. And by the time you get to the days of Jesus, Jews just, on the whole, despised Gentiles, viewed them as subhuman. But here, they're willing to work with the accursed Gentile because Paul and Barnabas are a far greater threat to them. 
And what it says is that there was a coalition here of Gentiles and Jews along with rulers. So these are, are the opposition is, is people of influence and power. And they get together to mistreat Paul and Barnabas, which when you read that, you're like, okay, they're going like to insult them, maybe throw some rotten fruit at them. But it says mistreat and to stone them. They wanted to kill Paul and Barnabas in a pretty brutal, horrific way. Fortunately, God knew this, obviously, and, and Paul and Barnabas hear about it, and they're able to flee for their very lives before their enemies are able to carry out this plan. But it's interesting, right? This is not the first time that Paul has been in danger for his life, and it won't be the last time, as we'll see as we go through Acts. This is kind of a common theme for Paul. He seems to always be in places where people want to take his life. And for both Paul and Barnabas, I mean, you've got to imagine the fear. I've never had to run for my life. Uh, I think the closest we can get to that is maybe people who've served in the military. But I've never experienced that kind of fear for my life, that I need to get out of town or someone is going to brutally murder me. But this was part of the tribulation that Paul and Barnabas were going to experience, again, in this road that Jesus had called them to walk. In this first missionary journey to take the gospel, it was not known. This was part of the burden, the cross, that Paul and Barnabas were going to bear. And again, what Paul and Barnabas tell the Galatian Christians at the end is, you too are going to experience tribulations. If you're a Christian, you too, at times, are going to experience danger and fear in various ways. Now, it may not look like what we see in the text. It probably won't look like a lynching mob wanting to take your life. But there are other ways we can be afraid. The older I get, I find I have more to be afraid of. Uh, now I have children who are young and moldable and vulnerable that I'm afraid for. What will happen to them? Um, I'm afraid for what will happen to our church, the spiritual health. We have an enemy who wants to tear us apart, just like any number of churches have been torn apart in the last 10 years and throughout the history of the church. And I'm sure you, in your context, have a number of things that you're fearful of, anxieties that hide just below the surface. And not just fears, but also we have to remember, again, we may not be in danger from mob violence like Paul and Barnabas, but we do have an enemy and our enemy is, is, is not non-Christians and certainly not other Christians. Our enemy is Satan, who wants nothing more than to destroy the joy that you have in Jesus, to tarnish your witness, and ultimately to destroy us. And so, yeah, we're in danger to follow Jesus. The road that is before us will involve at times fear, and it certainly involves danger. But here's the question we have to ask. Okay, if, if Paul and Barnabas, by the Spirit, is telling the Galatian Christians, this is what it means to enter the kingdom of God. This is, gonna, this is what the road will look like. Why? Why does the Lord Jesus Christ call us to walk that kind of road? He's the Lord. He could prevent that if he wanted to. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Why does he allow more broadly, tribulations in general. Why does he allow those to, to enter into our lives? Why are they necessary? And I have two primary purposes here for us. And these are going to apply to all the tribulations, not just fear and danger. But first, the reason why this is necessary is because of who Jesus wants to form you to be. Who Jesus wants you to be now and who he wants you to become. It's necessary for the formation of us as individuals. Now, in our culture, sometimes um, that can feel like a little bit of a cop-out, right? You're like, well, I didn't accomplish anything. But it was a learning experience. You know, you say that in sports when your team gets blown out of the water, and you're like, well, we lost 20 to nothing. But it was a learning experience. And you're like, no, dude, you, just, you just, just own it. You got destroyed. There's nothing good. Because in our culture, what matters most is what you accomplish. It's what you can do with your life, what you can produce. Again, we don't, we don't give Nobel Peace Prizes to people for their extraordinary character. But if you do great things, we give you awards. I want you to know that God cares far more about who you are and who are you, you are becoming than anything you will ever do. God does not need us to do great things for him. 
He does not need you to live an extraordinary life and do extraordinary things. If God wants something extraordinary done, he just snaps his fingers. In the Old Testament, right, the, the, the Old Testament version was offering sacrifices, and people were like, I gotta offer sacrifices to God. And God's like, Look, I don't ask for sacrifices as if I really need them. As if I I I, I eat the, the, the sacrifices you give to me. In Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, if that were even possible, I wouldn't ask you. The world and everything in it is mine. God doesn't need us to do great things. He doesn't care whether we do great things. He cares who we are and who we're becoming. God's goal for us is told us in Ephesians 4. Put off your old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what God wants for us. To be formed into the image of Jesus in his likeness and his holiness. That's why, I mean... Look, if Jesus cared mostly about what we accomplished for him, why would he have given Paul the thorn in the flesh? That's Paul's big question. He's like, I'm being hindered from ministry, Jesus, in your name. And Jesus is like, I don't care what you do for me. I, I care about who you're becoming, Paul. And that's why Jesus allows, that's why it's necessary for these tribulations why does Jesus litter our pathway, pathway with these struggles? Because these teach us what it means to hope and to trust. Teaches what it means to have patience. Look, we can't learn to trust unless there's risk in our lives, right? Um, unless there's a possibility something can go bad, we can't actually learn how to trust God. Likewise, we can't learn what it means to be patient and to wait upon the Lord unless there's something that we really want that God has not given to us yet. Again, Jesus brings these tribulations in our lives because of who he wants us to be because they form us. And so coming back to this fear and danger, whatever anxieties are in your life right now, whatever fears lurk beneath the surface, it's an opportunity for you to offer up those fears to the Lord. Every time you experience anxiety, that's an opportunity to turn to Jesus and receive his peace. An opportunity to grow in actually trusting him. To pass those off, to cast your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. And you may think, why well, I wish, why do I have these anxieties? I don't want to be afraid. Honestly, though, would you turn to Jesus nearly as much as if, if you were never afraid? Again, Jesus brings these tribulations in our life to form us. But secondly, the other reason why, why Jesus brings these tribulations and difficulties in our life is, is, is for gospel witness. Uh, again, you know, <laughs> there's nothing more profound when a Christian is in, going through a hard time and yet they find joy in the Lord that makes no sense from their physical circumstances. Um, you want to talk about a witness that will speak very loudly and profoundly to your neighbors and your friends, it's when you should have every reason to be weeping and yet you have a quiet confidence in the Lord. Similarly for Christians, like brothers and sisters, we need to see this in each other's lives. Think how encouraging it would have been for the Christians in Galatia, for Paul, Paul bearing the marks of stoning on his body, who had been beaten to within an inch of his life, and yet he's going right back into that city, and he's still preaching the gospel. And every Christian in Galatia is thinking, well, well shucks, if, if Paul can still do that, maybe I can do that too. And likewise, when we see a brother or sister who's going through some kind of struggle, and, and yet they're fighting for joy, even imperfectly, that's profound encouragement for, for us. And as your pastor, I've been put in a place where I've, getting, I've been able to see that in some of y'all's lives. And I want you to know, I, I hope I'm encouraging to you. But oftentimes, you are far more encouraging to me as I see you struggle and fight for joy and for faithfulness in the midst of all the things that are going on. That testifies, taste and see the Lord is good. Even when the rest of my life is not that great. But this is our first point. We must enter the kingdom of God through fear and danger. 
Second, through misunderstanding and harm. Now, this is, uh, this is actually two different uh, stories here. So first is through misunderstanding and then through harm. So first, through misunderstanding, let me read verses 8 to 18 for us. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, a God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So we see a man here who is, as Luke describes it, a man crippled from birth who had never walked. What Luke is telling us there is that this is no psychosomatic condition. This is not someone with a pain in their back that Paul heals. It's someone who had never walked, who as an adult had never stood on his feet and he had likely grown up in this city, and everyone had seen him from birth as the man who could not walk. And then along comes Paul, and he heals him. And it's interesting, most commentators will point out how this is very similar to a healing earlier in Acts, in Acts 3. And there it's Peter. And if you remember, Peter's going to the temple, and likewise, there is a man who has been, as it's described, lame from birth. Uh, And that man also had never walked, and Peter, seeing him, I mean, there's so many parallels, makes eye contact, and then heals him. But in that situation, what comes out from that healing in Luke 3 is what's in Luke 3, 8. And leaping up, the man who was healed stood and began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And then there was a great crowd that gathered, and Peter had a unique opportunity to preach the gospel in a very powerful way. Well, here's Paul on Acts 14, and he heals a man. And perhaps Paul was there when Peter preached. I mean, Paul was in Jerusalem in those early days. And so maybe he's thinking, oh, I I saw what happened with Peter. This is going to be great. And that's not quite what happened. But instead, the crowd begins to cry out that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. And they try to worship them. Now, we read this and we're like, why? okay, why did they assume that these two men are gods? And it seems like kind of a, a leap to make. And there's, there's actually a, a legend that's helpful to know. It's helpful to know the context. And there was a legend that was popular in this area of Galatia. And we know of it because there's a, a Roman poet named Ovid who wrote about it. But according to this legend, uh, Zeus and Hermes had come to, to the area of Galatia, the province of Galatia, And they'd come disguised as men. And they came asking for hospitality, for a place to stay. And they went from house to house, village to village, asking for someone to put them up. And they were turned down a thousand times before finally they ended up at the home of of two elderly, very poor people who, out of their poverty, welcomed them in, fed them as best as they could. And once they had received Zeus and Hermes, then Zeus and Hermes revealed themselves for who they were, blessed this elderly couple with great riches and then went back and destroyed all the thousand people who refused to give them hospitality. That's a common myth of the place. And so you can understand, here comes Paul and Barnabas, two strangers no one has ever seen, do a miracle that is indisputable. And they're like, oh oh my word, the stories are true. We know how this goes down and we better... We better react right, or we know what will happen if we don't. (laughs) And so they're trying to offer worship and praise to Paul and Barnabas. 
And what's, again, there's like a tragic irony here. Paul and Barnabas don't even realize what's going on at first because the people are shouting like Hunian. Again, Paul maybe thinks, oh my word, God's working a revival until he sees the priests of Zeus bringing the bulls to him. And he realizes, oh, no, no, no. I've been so deeply misunderstood. Because we live in a fallen world, because we ourselves make mistakes, because we have an enemy who, 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 who wants more than anything to keep us from communicating the gospel clearly, there will be times as a Christian where you'll be misunderstood, sometimes despite your best intentions. When I was in high school, my senior year of high school, I took music theory one and two, and the first day of class, I sit down, there's a girl next to me, I, I vaguely know who she is, and she says, oh, you're Mike Kubinek. I'm like, yeah, nice to meet you. She says, why do you hate gay people? Now, I, I was a Christian. I led a Bible study on, on my high school campus. I was known for being a Christian. This may shock you. I also enjoyed debating ideas. And, uh, and I took, you know, I had classes where we would debate stuff like sexual ethics. And there were many times where, I'll be frank with you, I cared a lot more about winning an argument than about how I was communicating and whether I was communicating with grace, with humility, and winsomeness. But when this student asked me that question, it broke my heart. You know, I, again, I, you know, this is rural Pennsylvania in the 2000s. There was only a handful of kids in my, in my school who were openly gay. But the thought that they thought that I hated them, it just broke my heart. Because it was so far from the truth. Like, I just, I wanted them to know the Jesus I know. I wanted them to know the freedom of what life fellowship with God was like. But I was misunderstood. Brothers and sisters, sometimes despite your best intentions, because life is just messy, sometimes you'll just be misunderstood. Sometimes by non-Christians, sometimes by other Christians. And when that happens, when we're misunderstood, what do we do? Well, first thing we do is we try to set the story straight. That's what Paul and Barnabas do, right? When they find out what's going on, they're not like, well, chalk this one up to a loss, move on to the next city. No, they run out into the crowd, and they're going to the point of ripping their clothes. No! Stop! Physically restraining this crowd from offering sacrifices to them. When we were misunderstood, what does that mean? It just means we have to work all the harder to set the story straight. Part of it involves learning to live as Christians and living out loud. Not being embarrassed when we're around our non-Christian neighbors that we worship a guy who was killed and, and then brought back to life. See, here, here's the truth. Um, again, we have an enemy who, who works through deception and lies. And in my experience, he's been able to convince many non-Christians that, hey, Christians are, are just bigoted, hateful, uneducated, stupid idiots. And the problem is they don't know any Christians. And so they're, they're safe in those assumptions. And maybe they've met one Christian who fit that bill. But when you are just honest in, 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 in winsome and humble and gentle ways that you're Christian and, and, and you're about Jesus and he's He's taught us things that apply to our lives. And you don't fit that picture. It's cognitive dissonance. You see, it's much easier to dismiss the gospel when you can assume that every Christian is just, again, a, a bigoted, hateful idiot. But when they meet people who are thoughtful and kind, kind of like you all, oh, and you're a Christian, that begins to work back that, 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 that story. Also, again, when we're misunderstood, it's the time for introspection as Christians, too, because maybe, we've, maybe we haven't communicated well. Again, when that student asked me that question, that was the beginning of a very long journey for me of realizing that you can win a battle and just lose the war. In other words, you can win an argument and completely lose the person you're arguing with and completely lose every person who's listening in. And it doesn't matter that you have all the arguments in your favor. And I haven't learned that yet, although I'm not where I once was. But sometimes that's also room for us to consider if we as Christians, how have we communicated our faith? How have we communicated what's near and dear to us? 
Maybe we need to repent. But we set the record straight. That's what we do. When we're misunderstood and, and, and as best as we can in, in the power of the Spirit, we set the record straight. But second, you know, when we've done our best, best intentions communicate as well as we can and we're still misunderstood and we're still spoken wrongly of, what do we do then? Well, in those situations, we remember whose opinion really matters. When Paul came under attack, as he often did in his ministry, but specifically from Christians or professing Christians in Church of Corinth, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. What I find so interesting about Paul here is that he doesn't say, hey, my conscience is clean. I don't care what you think. He doesn't even trust his own judgment of himself. He says, my judge is the Lord. He is the one whom I will answer to. When we're misunderstood, again, what is Jesus doing in those situations? Especially in the situation, I mean, you know, when I'm in high school and I'm being a, I'm being a dummy, part of that's like, Mike, you got to repent. But like when we do our best and we still are misunderstood, what is Jesus doing in those times? Well, he's, he's forcing us to come to grips with the question of whose opinion really matters. Because we care so much about what people think about us. And you may think you don't, but you're lying to yourself. The fact that you didn't show up wearing a turban today and that you dress like everyone else. You know, turbans and, and cloaks would be way more comfortable people. But we wear jeans and pants and shirts because we care that people don't think we're weirdos. But when we're misunderstood, it's an opportunity. Jesus is forcing us to come to grips with whose opinion really matters. <laughs> and that doesn't mean you should come next week wearing a cloak. Okay, continue wearing normal clothes. That's an analogy, illustration. But we remember, again, it's the lamb who is slain for us. And here's the thing, y'all. Jesus, again, he, who, who is the one who will judge us? It was the lamb who laid down his life for you, who's described in the Bible as gracious and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love. And so here's the fact. If you, in, in humble brokenness, have cried out to Jesus for salvation, when you answer to him one day, you will find him to be far more gracious than any of your critics. And maybe even more, you'll find him to be more gracious than your own inner critic. So again, what do we do when we're misunderstood? We, are, we set the record straight, and we remember whose opinion really matters. That's the first part of second point. Second point, sub-point B, through harm. Let's look at verses 19. So through misunderstanding and through harm, verses 19, 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Paul, when he writes 2 Corinthians, lists all the sufferings he's been through, and he mentions that he's been stoned once, and this is likely the, the instance he's referring to. Uh, and he's been beaten so badly that his attackers assume he's dead, and so he's kind of dragged what they think is his corpse outside the city limits and just dump him. And then don't miss this. This is amazing. Paul, well, one, he, he's not dead. That's the first miracle. And then he doesn't, like, go into hiding, which is what I would have done. I'd be like, Lord, you've closed that door. I'm moving on to the next one. He just goes right back into that city. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. This is, this, is, this is what you call a lynching mob, mob violence. Can you imagine the awkwardness of the people who are involved in this next morning when the, the rage of the moment is gone? And they're like, oh, there's that guy that we tried to kill. I don't know, Jesus has a sense of humor, I think. There's some irony there. Look, I, I don't think, most of us are not going to experience danger from this kind of harm. Some of you, if you go into places where Christianity is illegal. But what do we take from this? Well, it's this. Look, you know... If Paul can be beaten to within an inch of his life and then pick himself up and go right back into the city where his attackers live, I mean, if Paul can do that, it just it gives perspective on the sacrifices that Jesus may ask you to make. Right? If Paul can do that, right, like I can wake myself up in the morning so that I can begin the day in, in, in some word and prayer. 
If, if Paul can do that, then I can take the social risk of trying to talk to my coworkers about Jesus, knowing that they may think I'm the biggest dummy in the world, or my neighbors, or my friends. It just gives perspective. Whatever Jesus asks of us, well, you know what? It's not this. <laughs> we, can, we can suck it up. This is the road to the kingdom of God. This is what Paul tells the Christians in Galatia. It's one that's paved with tribulation, with struggles and hardships. It's going to come through fear and danger, through misunderstanding and maybe even harm. But don't, don't lose heart. Don't let that frighten you. Don't be discouraged. Why? Because you've been entrusted into the care of one who is very trustworthy. And this brings us to our, our third and last point. But Jesus holds us fast. Let me read verses 20 to 23. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Um, I, when I was finished, you know, when I say stuff that's not in my outline, I get in trouble. Uh, I should not have said suck it up. That, I don't know why I said that. Because whatever you're going through, it's not insignificant. And it's not insignificant to Christ. So I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. It was just, you just say things when people are staring at you. Our third point, though, but Jesus holds us fast. There's something beautiful, I think, and touching about these verses. Because here's Paul, and you got to picture this bearing the, the, the marks of stoning on his body, bruised cuts. Maybe he's got a broken limb. We don't know. And he's speaking to his children in the faith, the people that he had been willing to go through this kind of suffering to bring the gospel to. And, and he's going home because his calling from Jesus is not to plant a church and pastor it for 30 years, but to go where the gospel is not known. He does not have the option to remain. And so he's leaving behind men and women he loves who are going to stay in this hostile situation. And it's like, what do you do? He can't stay and protect them. And even if he did stay, he has no ability to protect these people he loves from experiencing the exact same things that he experiences. This beautiful, touching scene. And so ultimately, what does Paul do? So the only thing that he could do that makes any difference, and it's how he finishes verse 23. And they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When all is said and done, right, Paul and Barnabas, they've done their best, they've preached their guts out, they've, they've witnessed, they've, they've suffered, but in the end, these brothers and sisters that they love so deeply, well, they know who holds them, and it's not them, but it's Jesus. They know who's gonna, who's gonna watch over them, who's gonna care for them long after Paul and Barnabas is gone, it's it's Jesus, and so they entrust them into the hands of Jesus because what else could they possibly do? Similarly, our, you know, our journey in this life, yeah, it's going to involve difficulties at times and trials and struggles and persecutions, but Jesus is the one who holds you. He's the one who cares for you. He's the one who will carry you when you are tired and weary, when you're ready to give up, when your faith is low, Jesus is the one who holds you. You've been entrusted into hands that are oh so trustworthy. And we actually see ways that Jesus cares for the Galatian Christians in our text and ways that he cares for us, ways that he cares for you. And the first way that he cares for the Galatian Christians and the first way that he cares for you in your tribulations and trials is through his word. Now you may be reading these verses and saying, Mike, the Bible is literally not mentioned in those verses. How is Jesus caring for the Galatian Christians through his word? Well, again, what does Barnabas and, uh, and Paul do, or what do they say? They're strengthening the souls of the disciples. They're encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're serving in a time before the New Testament is written. Uh, 
But what is literally every New Testament letter written to do? Why does Paul write Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and 1 and 2 Timothy? Why does Peter write his letters? Why does James write his letters? Why does the writer of Hebrews, whomever it may be, write his letter? Well, it's ultimately to strengthen and encourage Christians to continue in the faith. Here are the apostles. They're giving their apostolic exhortation, which will one day be put down in letters for us. The Spirit is speaking through what will be the word of God to these Christians. Have you ever thought of the New Testament like that? When we look at it, it's like this like archaic book. Sometimes it's hard to understand, but these are letters written to you from the heart of Jesus Christ to strengthen you, to encourage you. Don't give up. Keep fighting the good faith. This is why Christians throughout the centuries and the times of their own testing and trials have come to the scriptures and found in them a deep, a deep reservoir of encouragement and strength, even when all of their strength has failed. Jesus cares for us through his word, which even though it does not change, because every day our circumstances change, the, the gospel has the ability to speak anew, afresh. Because every day you wake up, it's a different day. The word remains the same, but it speaks afresh because we encounter different circumstances. It's beautiful about the word of God. But Jesus cares for us through his word. Second, Jesus cared for the Galatian Christians, and he cares for us through the appointment of elders. Here it says in verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Again, Paul and Barnabas are leaving because their commission is to preach the gospel where it is not known. They do not have the option to stay. It doesn't matter. It's not up to them. But someone has to take their place to do what they've been doing, preaching the gospel, strengthening and encouraging the disciples to continue in the faith. And so they raise up elders, which same thing as a pastor, pastor elder, to do exactly that, to preach the gospel to strengthen the disciples, to encourage them. That's my job role, right? Like if, 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 you know, if there was like a job description of pastor of Vine Street Baptist Church is to preach the gospel, preach the scriptures, and do all that I can to strengthen you and to encourage you to continue in the faith. And the calling for me as your pastor is to do that through fear and danger, through misunderstanding and harm, Jesus cares for you through his word, through the ministry of pastors, elders. But lastly, Jesus cares for us by reminding us of our end destination. Again, you know, uh, verse 22, um, through many tribulations, it's our life, we must enter the kingdom of God. That is the goal, the kingdom of God, the very presence of the living God seeing our Savior face to face. And Jesus reminds them, it's not, not all for nothing. Sometimes we need to remember that's the goal. Uh, I, I ran a race this summer, 5K, my family vacation in upstate New York. And it was, it was my brother and his wife and kids, us and then my parents. And uh, I ran this 5K with a goal. And that goal, right, as a mature, humble Christian was to beat my brother and then retire forever as a reigning champion because my brother is a much faster runner than I am. And so uh, you got to understand, this 5K is like not a serious affair. Like you, you, it's just supposed to be fun. You kind of show up and do it. I trained for four months. I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want Bob showing up. Like I wanted this to be an unfair fight. <laughs> And I, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, I was running. I didn't even tell Mariko. Um, I was, like, running hills. I was running intervals. I got really fit for me, okay? 
And the thing is that this 5K is the most miserable 20 plus minutes of your life because it's in the Adirondack Mountains. And so it's not a you know, 5K that has a hilly section, but it's a 5K of hills. It's just up, down, the entire way. And so when you run races, uh, usually you're able to hit some kind of like rhythm. You just you hit your pace and you feel good. But when it's just up, down, the whole way, you're, you don't ever hit a pace. It's just, look, it just was miserable. Like I trained for four months to just be miserable for 22 minutes. Just, you're just trying to keep going and not die. And, and afterwards, I have, a, I have a, a, a running watch which monitors my heart. And, um, and like my average heart rate was 173. And there was one point where I peaked at 188, which honestly, I'm a little bit afraid that that might have been dangerous. So that, it, was just, it was just miserable. It was miserable. And here's my point. When I'm running that 5K, there's got to be something I'm running. Like there's got to be some goal. Because to be honest, it'd be way more comfortable to walk up that next hill than to try to run up it as fast as I can as I feel like I'm literally dying. There's got, I, there's got to be some reason I'm moving. And my goal was to beat my brother. And I did, and it was worth it. <laughs> Every moment of that agony, it was worth it. And I officially retired from racing. But there are times, and you know this, if you've been a Christian for a while, when the Christian life feels like that 5K and it's just nothing's working, no joy, it's just hard. And we gotta remember the goal. And those times we gotta remember what we're running towards. And it is the kingdom of God, which again is seeing Jesus, the one whom we only know by faith, seeing him face to face without this veil of faith in between obstructing our vision. It's being in the presence of the one we've loved since the moment he first called our name and called us out of darkness and made us his own. And we'll be with him forever. And we'll know joy forever. Jesus encourages and cares for his church by reminding them of what they're running towards. Don't give up. Yeah, this hill's hard. You know what? Jesus and his mercy will probably give you a hill going down if you just make up this one. But even if not, remember the end. Jesus will be there at the end. Well done, my faithful, beloved child. Don't give up. Keep at it. Remember the joy of seeing Jesus face to face. Let's pray. Jesus, you know the life circumstance of each one of us. You know what we need to hear. I pray that you encourage us in the times when it's hard. I pray that you'll strengthen us when we feel beyond our strength. And I pray that most of all we remember the goal, that our home is in the kingdom of God, where we will live forever with the one whom we've loved with the one who even more has loved us without fail every moment of every day of our lives. Jesus, it's you that we pursue. We pray this in your name. Amen.